0: Hello, and welcome to the 47th episode of Adam Alonzi's podcast. Tonight we are discussing modern China with Peter Glassman. This is his second time on the show, and as always, he is spectacular.
1: Things are changing very rapidly and deeply. I think precisely because a degree of prosperity unprecedented in China has now been developed by a number of people previously unprecedented in China and in common with all other polities of which we know, when enough people become sufficiently sure that they can survive they begin to seek and they begin to seek levels of of consequence of experience of personal substantiation that previously had seemed both unimaginable and therefore undesirable today china is as rampantly materialistic as any nation in the west perhaps even more so um Particularly this is the case among middle-aged and younger people, people who have been immunized against the experiences of the past in the case of the very young have no memory of it, even of the Cultural Revolution, and instead feel themselves to be in a frenetic competition for uh, not just resources, but, but for personal consequence the situation in China today is as different from 30 years ago as perhaps the United States would have been different sociologically, economically, 75, 100 years ago.
0: They've undergone their industrial revolution and now they're sort of in a gilded age. They
1: are. um, The... Fruits of that revolution have not been shared equally, and this is a source of considerable and growing political and social tension in China. The development of China has occurred primarily in the very large cities and in the regions that are to uh, coastal regions of China to the south and along the east coast up to the north. The interior of China and the extreme rural areas of China continue of, of epical struggle, but even there, development is occurring at a rapid pace, and the government is um, expending immense resources on accelerating development in the areas that previously have not experienced it, and the results are similar. As, as each area, as each region, as each province, as each city becomes more successful in economic terms, people begin to question, what is success? is that they want in addition to, or instead of, mere wealth. And what they want tends to be what people everywhere want, who find themselves in this kind of accelerated state of consciousness. They want things, um, they want to own a great deal, they want to show the worth and the value of everything that they own as a way of displaying what may pass for their own worth and their own value. The painful consequences to the Confucian heritage of of China will be evident and they're everywhere to be seen. Um, The respect for elders is rapidly diminishing. The commitment to family over and above self is rapidly diminishing. The sense of the citizen as opposed to the questing individual person is no longer a contest. Um, The politics of personality, the politics of personhood are prevailing fully as much in China as in the West. It is troubling to the older generation and to China's political and spiritual leaders there is nothing that can do about it any more than there is much that can be done about it by leadership circles in the West. One of the instruments of change and one of its manifestations that did not exist when I was first visiting China, imperative that most Chinese people continue to feel is that of stability. But inevitably, um, a free exchange and flow of ideas on the internet or through television creates conflict, controversy, and destabilization. This is especially true in a government that consists of a single political party and does not brook opposition to it. So the tensions that are pervading China today are in part spiritual, um, they are in part ontological, and they are in part political.
0: Ah, there are so many ways that we can move from there, but you mentioned political leadership and It brought to mind one of the passages about a man who said that competition is very intense. And, of course, this is similar to the intense competition between prospective bureaucrats throughout Chinese history. But he claims that it is their way of ensuring that their politicians are culled from the best and the brightest, whereas we get the very worst psychopaths. (laughs)
1: For the 35 years we're talking about, 30 to 35 years you and I are discussing, that has continued to be one of the most intriguing experiences that I have had to compare and contrast political systems that are in every respect contrary to one another, and yet often produce strikingly similar kinds of consciousness and and results by differing means. In the West, it is a rule of belief, an article of assumption, unquestioned, unexamined, that the government of China is illegitimate because it was not voted into power by the people of China in a way that the West describes as democratic. And let's leave aside the imperfections of the Western political system for a moment. Inside China, there is a continuous awareness on the part of the ruling party, um, that is to say of its leadership circles, that the government does not have the kind of legitimacy that can be conferred by electoral process in the West. And it is believed by everyone I have ever met and known well in the political system that this confers particular and specific kinds of responsibility upon those who lead in order to justify the unjustifiable, if you will. If a government is illegitimate, its legitimacy has to inhere in its performance. People have to feel so pleased by what their government does for them and with its power that they don't question its legitimacy. Um, I don't know that that is the case in the West. The ability of people to register their content or their discontent with performance is very circumscribed in China, obviously. And so the people who lead, the people who are, if we want to put it this way, the beneficiaries of honor and power, feel a prodigious internal imperative to perform brilliantly well in their various callings as individuals and for them to do so collectively. The talent of the leadership group can be measured, can be assessed, can be evaluated. And usually the way we do that inside China as Chinese people is very similar, I suppose, to the way in which a citizenry in an electoral environment registers its content or lack of content with its government. People ask themselves, are our lives improving? Are our lives improving in ways that matter to us, not to American analysts or British analysts or French analysts or Dutch analysts, but do we, the people of China, feel that our lives are improving? And to this point, the vast plurality of Chinese people do feel that and do feel a sometimes not expressed, but internally conspicuous pride in their country. I'm always struck by the fact that in China, people rarely differentiate between their country and their government. They think of their country and their civilization as an entity that happens to be directed by people who happen to call themselves communists although I hope you'll remember the passage in, in my book when the most powerful man I've ever met in China asked me to take a message to my president, something I could not do. didn't seem to recognize. I'm not on speaking terms with each president of the United States. But he did ask me to take a message to my president that he said I have never met a communist, um, nor have I. And... The people in China who are leading China's government feel an obligation to perform brilliantly well, to purge members of the government who do not perform well, to advance in consequence and in power those who do, so that a regime that has never been elected to power can attain to legitimacy through function. And by and large... One could make a case this has been the most successfully performing government of the last 50 years worldwide.
0: Now, I, I'm i not sure how modern Chinese perceive bureaucracy, but among Americans, including left-leaning ones, it's usually thought of as a horrible, slow, inefficient waste of tax dollars. Yes. The most part, the Chinese, on the other hand, with a have a very long history of, if not respecting, at least tolerating bureaucracy. I suppose that ties in with the intense respect for scholarship. So they have scholar bureaucrats, they have politicians with degrees in chemistry, and various other subjects that are not law or business. Which is probably good for their country,
1: I think it is good for their country, especially if we keep in mind what we were talking about earlier this hour the the consensus view that what the country needs and what the government therefore must produce is pragmatic and has to do with such areas as improving infrastructure, um, creating stability in Monetary affairs. um, The West little notes that in the past 25 years, the Chinese government has successfully privatized housing for slightly more than 22% of the world's population and has done so peaceably. Um, Healthcare in China is not universally excellent, but the differences between the kind of healthcare available to a common working person and to one of China's elite are uh, far less drastic than the Gulfs that exist in the West in these areas. I guess what I'm trying to say with examples is that people in China feel that the bureaucracy that they may joke about, resent, and sometimes bump up against, they would say at the end of the day is working. Again, the most Powerful person I have ever met in China, whom I know well, um, the same man I was referring to earlier, once told me, in the United States, the corrective to impulsive action seems to be your Senate. In China, it's our bureaucracy. It takes some time to establish agreement and to get things done here. And that is a good thing, because we have 1.3 billion people Who need to agree with one another? What I said when we first initiated this part of our conversation was that I continuously learned for 35 years that the differences between our political systems are wonderfully interesting and at the end of the day, commonalities achieved by differing means. China has its bureaucracy, (laughs) we have our Senate. Um, We have legitimacy that is tested at the polls regularly, um, not cheaply, with perhaps far too much influence and power going to those who can influence the testing of legitimacy. In China, leaders rise and fall from power regularly based on whether or not they're successful at doing the jobs they have. People who are not successful, who have illegitimate power, bring into question the legitimacy of power itself. And so the ruling authorities have a very low tolerance for poor performance, because they'll all lose their jobs if they don't root out
0: poor performers. Precisely. Now, this might have been a good question to lead with, although I think it also fits very well in the middle. Are there any, well, we can cover both misconceptions Chinese have about the United States and the West and misconceptions Americans have about China, one of the most persistent and irritating, of course, is many Americans seem to think China is a communist country, still a communist country.
1: Yes, that, that enters the realm of bathos because the... Evidence is is so conspicuous that China is a bourgeois capitalist nation um masquerading with an ideology, and the West is a bourgeois capitalist nation masquerading with its own ideologies, often in conflict with our practice the The confusion that i simultaneously sad and dangerous that the Western world, particularly the United States, has about China is that China is a competitor to the United States militarily. Um, the notion that we cannot envision another large, powerful, important society without regarding it as either an ally or a competitor. I don't know why the United States needs to have enemies. We Often are are trying to identify, find, locate enemies, so that in some way we help them instead of corrective of of our own challenges and our own needs. China is not our enemy. I've never met anyone in China who thinks that they are enemies of the United States. China is, as a nation, as close to a corporation as we will ever find in the world. China is in the business of business. It wants to do business. And it is a manufacturing nation. It wants to be friendly with the United States because the United States is its most important and most lucrative market. Uh, The United States, in its government class, in its punditry class, in its analytical class, often tries to analyze the amount of China is spending on its military, the claims that China is attempting to make in its geosphere, and to identify in China's behavior in these universal activities of government, a looming challenge to the United States. Uh, The United States practices precisely the same sorts of behaviors with vastly more outlay, there is no military competitor to the United States in the world, and it is unforeseeable that there ever will be in, in the next century a military competitor to the United States. So this preoccupation seems to me preposterous and tragic because so much more could be accomplished for the welfare of our peoples and for the world if we could somehow unite in friendship rather than needing to figure out who opposes us and oppose them. I often hear wistful commentary from senior government leaders in China. It's very touching, really. Um, The commentary is this. Chinese people live in the United States now. No other country has embraced its Chinese emigres as fully. And I hear the phrase as wholeheartedly as the United States has. Why do we not have the special relationship with the United States as a country that England has. We would like to be in Asia as England is to the United States in the Atlantic and worldwide. The more time I spend in China, the more difficult it is for me to answer that question. That should be the case. I want to close this part of the commentary by remarking that, although I do not know many senior leaders in the United States and few well, I am pretty well informed as a private citizen. I don't think there are more than a handful of people of significant influence in American politics who know very much about China, who, who have spent much time there. Most of our educated ruling class were came to maturity in an era in in which the baseline geopolitics was the global conflict between what was then the Soviet Union and the United States. And I think that way of thinking has pervaded consciousness so profoundly that it's unchangeable in, in the United States. There is no enemy in the world quite like the Soviet Union was. And so there is perhaps a, an, an inchoate, perhaps even unconscious desire to create one because it's convenient for domestic political consumption in the United States. China is not as the Soviet Union was in the 1950s and the 1960s.
0: It's a business. Right, so we'll have to wait for those people to die for, (laughs) for a shift to take place.
1: Or we could say in the world of democracy as a young and more globally literate population rises to political leadership and corporate leadership in America i do wish there were a much larger movement of western university students to study in china that would parallel the the uh, the ocean of chinese students who are studying in the west we we don't have many young people who are learning about china and if I were now 17, going on 18, I'd make sure I got myself there for a year before I were 22. Because the future of the world is there, in the relationship between the United States and China.
0: As uh, there's no doubt, it will be very important, and despite being a, a wannabe aristocrat, I must defend mm-hmm. some of the anti Chinese sentiment among blue-collar workers. I mean, they've We've lost a great number of manufacturing jobs, and many of them were very high quality. They were jobs for people without college degrees.
1: I agree, Adam, and I do understand and empathize heart and soul. One of the things you and I share across our generations is we both derive our lives from that background. Uh, our parents came from that background. My heart is there and will always be there. Uh, what I see from my complicated promontories that I never sought, they just devolved upon me. I see Americans lashing out against Chinese for the jobs that were lost for the way of life that was lost, without ever thinking thoughtfully about what are what responsibilities our own government our own corporate leadership are own culture, owns. A nation that requires virtually its business leaders to maximize profits with a three-month reporting cycle inevitably and inalienably is going to try to reduce costs regardless of the expense to human lives and to even our own society. And Indeed, they'll be rewarded for doing so. Our government has done, as I see it, virtually nothing to prepare for the changes that are inevitable. Our government has done nothing for the people whose lives have been altered. Our corporations are as callous as it is possible to be, as far as I can see. And I think there is a growing awareness in China that the Jobs that move to China will soon be moving on to Myanmar or to Bangladesh or to other places as workers begin to be qualified for and to demand compensation that is more fair to their needs and to their families. We live in an era in which most people say life is cheap in China. As far as I can see, life is cheap in the corporate civilization, and it ought not to be. I have never held a government office, so it is easy for me to hover around peripheries and think that leaders can and should do more to preserve and protect the lives of people who raise them to leadership. But I do think that, and I do think that what failed America at a crucial juncture in America's development was not the Chinese and their economic system, but our own.
0: Definitely. And we have, I know, a number of the things that make doing business in America more expensive are important, and we would consider them necessary. And the Chinese are beginning to consider them necessary as well. They're beginning to think, maybe we shouldn't need to wear masks When we go out on the town, maybe we shouldn't be breathing tremendous amounts of carcinogens every time we leave our houses. Well, you point to what is
1: becoming the number one, let's say, concern of both the people and the government of China for all the reasons that we've been talking about this hour. On the one hand, the people of China are in a more and more of them are to demand. Um, conditions of comfort, conditions of life, conditions of expectation that, as you say, we regard as necessary. And now our sisters and brothers in China regard them as necessary too. Accordingly, the government of China does, because if the government of China has to continuously meet the expectations of its people in order to survive in what we term its illegitimacy, they cannot allow the air of China and the water of China to become toxic. And yet it is. I have a prediction for you. Um, I have a prediction that China will operate much more in the realm of environmental protection than the United States, precisely because it is a totalitarian country. And it can. When the government of China determines that it needs to do something, it does it. It does it with out the kind of inhibitions and restraints that sometimes are painful to observe and sometimes deserve admiration. The government of China is resolved at the national level and increasingly in provincial provincial levels that environmentalism, as we call it in the West, um, will become its number two objective in the coming decades. The number one objective being to continue the security and welfare of the Chinese population, and it's in that context that environmentalism has come to seem so important in China. How to solve the problems that beset China's economy is no less complicated than how to solve them in the United States. Let's take the example of coal. Um, Coal mining, energy generation through coal. As in the United States, access to unlimited supplies of coal is fairly easy to obtain in China. As in the United States, a significant number of people are employed in the industry of mining coal and of transporting coal and of generating energy from coal. And so how does China solve the problem of dislocating upwards of 130 million workers and their families' lives in order to protect Air quality I don't know the answer to that, nor do they any more than the Governor of West Virginia could tell you today how we're going to do that, or the Governor of Ohio or Pennsylvania could tell you how we're going to do that, but my prediction is the Chinese will do it more quickly than we do because they can
0: uh, well, you know that I love geopolitical predictions they're my <laughs> substitute for they're my substitute for poker yes, you junkie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And they don't cost me any money, Nor- even when I'm wrong. <laughs> Take that one to the bank. <laughs> but when you're teaching your students, you mentioned Dickens yes. and Freud. And Dickens, when American students read him, you know, a book like Oliver Twist or Great Expectations, the stories seem so quaint and so far off, and almost dreamlike because we can't possibly conceive. Of these scenes happening in modern America, and just you know, 30 years ago, China was like a Dickens novel in many ways. This poverty, young people working, and horrible conditions. I'm I'm not really sure how much they've improved since then. And the story about Freud, I about his deathbed was not familiar to me, even though I made it through Peter Gay's biography on him, which is possibly the worst name (laughs) for a biographer of Freud, Peter Gay. (laughs) But uh, Freud being given the morphine on his deathbed and saying, by what right I want to remain lucid and clear, thinking to the very end and As most anyone knows, Freud was very fond of stimulants, Mm -hmm. so that makes sense. He wasn't a downer kind of guy. (laughs) So the Freud fascination in China was amusing to me, and I'm sure you have many memories of discussing him with your Chinese students. I do. What I have found in
1: all my life as a teacher in China is that what draws students to a figure in civilization is invariably character and consciousness, sensibility rather than story. There is a fervor to identify people of transcendent goodness. Um, Not just wisdom, not just genius, but people of the word that I often hear from my students is "heart." This is touching to me because when you leave a university in China, when you go anywhere in China and step onto a street, the numbers of people moving at a, as a seeming colossus, undifferentiable. Um, unstoppable, it's this currents of humanity moving along the swiftly, swiftly, swiftly crowded streets. What people ache for in Chinese student life is individuals, individuals who are good, caring, filled with tenderness, and the most important value I have ever seen in China, it's called we say in the West, sincerity, Um, being a whole and honest soul, integrated, filled with integrity. They love, they literally use the word love. They love Freud, the students who come my way. They love Dickens for the human beings they were. The quaintness of the stories or whether or not Freud's analyses of the human condition and the tropes of our psyche were accurate are immaterial to them. They they love the individuals. So it's often strange for someone who has a, been a practicing literary critic all his adult life, me, um, to see that the, the fundament of reaction, of response in Chinese circles to a work of literature is almost always, does this touch me? Does it touch me with its goodness and with its grace? No interest at all in structuralism. No interest at all in the uh, accuracy of its realism or anything of that nature. So in that sense, Dickens and Freud both made sense. But you know from reading the book and listeners to this broadcast have not read the book and and will not know that the reason I worked so extensively with Freud and Dickens in my original years in China was at the request of government leaders who wanted to use these figures as a way to be able to talk about China's emerging opportunities and problems without doing so directly. And putting conversants at risk.
0: And I am sorry to say that this is the point at which Skype simply refused to work any longer. But undoubtedly, Peter will return to the show and we will have many more stimulating conversations in the future. Good night. Good night. Good night.